Well, this is a good story. So I, I used to be someone, so I've been studying business and I find it very hard to believe that the, the first time I ever heard about social enterprise was when I started working at the Center for Change Making and Social Innovation. So that's the center that Senco uh, is conjoined with that they work out of. And it wasn't until Senco and the, there was this one PowerPoint I, I remember clearly when I started my job there at the college for my co-op from September to December, my supervisor that was um, supervising me back then uh, she showed me this PowerPoint that will help, that would help, that would give an introduction as to what social enterprise was and what Senco was, because I can't lie, you know, when I say that I had absolutely no clue about what social enterprise was. It freaked me out hearing that word because I thought it was so complex. So once I reviewed this PowerPoint, I, I saw this and it, I remember seeing these, this Venn diagram of business models. So you have your traditional business on one on the right side, and then you have your traditional charity on the left side. And I always thought those were the only two business models that existed because I've been in school for two years and I've never heard one thing about social enterprise. So um, once I saw this Venn diagram with a traditional business, which is purely trying to achieve financial value, and then I saw a traditional charity, which is trying to achieve social value, and then I saw social enterprise in the middle bubble. It, I had this aha moment and I thought, wow, how amazing is it that something like this actually exists? Welcome to part two of the Senco audio documentary, all about social enterprise in Central Ontario and beyond. I'm your host, Jenna Stevanato. And beside me again is our producer, Angela Shackle. I'm here. Hi. And our other producer, Brayden, is just outside the studio making sure our levels are all good. Okay, so off the top of the show, we heard from Celine Adante. Celine is finishing up a three-year diploma in business administration at Georgian College. And as she said, she was exposed to the concept of social enterprise through Georgian College, specifically at the Center for Changemaking and Social Innovation, or CCSI. Near the end of the 2019 winter semester, we had a chance to sit down with the class. Hi, my name is Kathy, and we are at the Georgian College in the Henry Burnick Center. Hi, my name is Dakota and Glanders, and we're also doing this podcast in Georgian, and I'd like to... Uh, Welcome you guys to a little insight on our program here, the Bachelor of Business. My name is Mitch Herman. I'm a fourth year uh, business management and leadership student. Kathy, Dakota, and Mitch are in a class taught by Professor Kelly Duggan. And when we met with them, they were meeting about their final assignment. Do you have any other questions or concerns at this stage? Um, how much confidence do you feel that we're actually gonna get this all done? Only you can tell me that. I just feel like we're behind, so I'm very anxious. We're yeah, like research. I'm spending every weekend from now into the next four weeks just reading and reading and so. reading. The students were understandably feeling anxious. By the end of the semester, they had to give a presentation where they would lay out a business plan for a real-world social enterprise and defend the reasons for their recommendations with solid market research, business research, and social research. And this group was working on a project for the Common Roof, one of the social enterprises that we heard from in part one. The whole basis of their business is that they have a shared roof, the Common Roof, uh, where multiple tenants can share and split overhead by sharing the rent of the, um, the actual facilities they rent their offices in. So we aren't focusing on the Barry component of um, New Path. We're focusing on the Aurelia, the Common Roof project which is essentially an unfinished facility that's approximately 5,994 square feet of unfinished space that they're trying to figure out uh, what to do with it to optimize revenue generation while keeping overhead low. But the main thing is that they wish to serve um, 
the social needs of the community and particularly they want to put an emphasis on uh, the youth, uh, entrepreneurship, and creative arts. Kelly's class was split into two groups, and as the common roof group kept reading and reading and reading in hopes of developing the best solution for the space, the other group was working on a project for the class's other professor. My name is Dan Kershaw. Uh, I am a social entrepreneur running uh, Furniture Bank, which is down in Toronto. Uh, we are a charity and social enterprise. And I live here in Barrie, and I see the social need, and I see the business need. And one of you know, my goals in my, my day job is to bring our model uh, to Simcoe Region. Furniture Bank is a social enterprise based in Toronto, and their model is quite simple. We want to remove quality furniture, keep it out of landfill, and pass it on to the families who need it. On the one hand, Furniture Bank operates as a furniture removal company. Clients pay for their trucks and movers to come to their homes and take away couches, chairs, desks, really anything they no longer want but is still in good condition. The social aspect comes from the next step. Instead of being thrown in the trash, the items are brought to a huge warehouse in Etobicoke. Furniture Bank acts as the catalyst between housing and having a home. The people they serve, including women and children leaving shelters, the formerly homeless, and newcomers and refugees to Canada don't just need a roof over their heads. They also need tables and chairs and beds. It's something I never thought about before, this idea that people are being provided with housing, but for the most part, they are completely empty and it's up to them to furnish it. So if you came to Etobicoke and you saw what we do, we see 20 families a day. Volunteers work with them to build their home based on the donated furniture we've kept out of the, of the uh, market. And rather than throwing to the curb and ending up in landfill, if it's still wonderful and still great and the type of donated item you'd give to your mother or your friend, that's the type of donated items that we're keeping and putting on the floor for families to pick and build their homes from. With the students at Georgian College, Dan is looking at ways to bring Furniture Bank to the Barry region. Um, and we have the same problem. Wherever you have poverty, where you, wherever you have low income or marginalized populations, or you have a very expensive housing situation, the particular uh, situation that we as a charity are solving exists, and it unfortunately exists in great quantities in Simcoe region, uh, which one of the reasons I'm very involved with Simcoe is to try and find a way to bring this model up to the region. We actually mentioned Furniture Bank in part one of this audio doc. Uh, we have a friend who works um, at the Furniture Bank and he said he gives dignity to people every day. How do you measure that? Later, we'll get into how to measure social impact. But before that, we're going to cover the basics. What are basic human needs? So, basic human needs include any resource deemed necessary for persons or households to achieve and maintain physical well-being. Traditionally, the basic list falls into two categories, food and water and shelter. As we said in part one, the thing that fascinates us is all of the knock-on effects that a holistic social enterprise can have. For example, employment and job training, dignity, and environmental sustainability. But when we were putting the series together, there was a noticeable trend in the social enterprises we spoke with. Their primary goal usually fell into one of these two categories. In part one, all of the social enterprises dealt in some way with the idea of shelter. And in part two, all of the businesses have centered their approach to social well-being around food. Travel down a dusty side road just off of Highway 11 in Huntsville, Ontario, and you'll arrive at a large warehouse building, clotted in corrugated steel with the words Good Food Co-op, pasted in large block letters along the top. My name is Kelly Ebbs. My role here at the Food Co-op is um, I am a co-manager, so I operate, I manage and operate the co-op with two other managers on a lateral level of management. Um, and uh, my main focus is the kitchen, uh, community kitchen, production kitchen, and um, development programs. 
Studies from food insecurity research at the University of Toronto have shown that adults in food insecure households have poorer mental and physical health, greater stress, and are more likely to suffer from chronic conditions. This concern was top of mind when Kelly and the other two managers of the food co-op, Craig Nakamoto and Carrie Lynn Freebird, decided to begin the project. Because it really is all about food access. Uh, when you look at the fact that we have hungry people everywhere in our country, there is an access issue, obviously, because we throw away 50% of the food that's produced. They noticed a gap in the production and consumption of locally grown food, and they acted to try and fill that gap. As you all probably know, co-ops are developed because there are gaps. They don't exist if there's not a need, right? In the Muskoka area, there were two gaps. One between residents and access to fresh local produce, and another one between local farmers and a reliable, accessible market for their crops. And the farmers that we were talking to were all saying, I would absolutely increase my capacity and scale up my business if I had a place to market at 12 months of the year that wasn't just my farm gate. We started to, when we worked with the Ryerson students, funny enough, they gave us a wonderful list of recommendations based on their uh, research. And one of their top recommendations was Muskoka needs a food hub or a food co-op in order to really make this happen. You need a physical, tangible space for people to come to and to gather and convene and spread ideas and share. And it wasn't, we did do a lot of research, but it wasn't very difficult for us to come to the um, conclusion that we wanted it to benefit the most people. We wanted the money to stay in the community and we wanted to operate as a not-for-profit. So uh, we gathered together a small group of us. We were, you know, developers, activists, farmers. It was just like a little, a little tight group. And we, we did a lot of meetings and had a lot of talks about the models that were possible um, in order to kind of get food to people. They finally decided on a multi-stakeholder, not-for-profit, cooperative model. A multi-stakeholder cooperative is a model that allows for consumers, producers, and workers to all be members and stakeholders in the business. The not-for-profit aspect means that any profits generated by the business are reinvested in the mission and not distributed to members, as it could be in a standard cooperative. This model also allows for non-members to shop at the co-op. They even allow people to bring in their own food from home and just have a nice place to sit and eat their lunch. I thought that was a really cool way to be a welcoming space for everyone. We started on a really grassroots level with no capital, no funding whatsoever, um, and built ourselves up to where we are today, which you saw when you walked in. It's a full, fully operational uh, food cooperative grocery market, commercial production kitchen and community cannery, and a cafe restaurant. Although they didn't receive any capital funding, they did have a very important partner supporting their mission when they first got started. We have, um, we've got, a, we've got good town leadership, which are, they're approachable, which is, was huge for our food co-op, to be honest with you, like being able to work with our municipality and our, and our mayor and our councillors has been great. When speaking with Mary Ferguson and Kathy Lang, our two social enterprise experts who we heard from in part one, they would often raise this point as one of the advantages that social enterprises can have in small towns. Because the populations are smaller, access to town mayors or councillors can usually happen relatively easily, and municipalities can sometimes even help facilitate the development of a social enterprise through partnerships or collaboration. I feel like because of its, because of its kind of family feel, you're able to kind of get in and um, and really go deep quickly within an idea or an organization or concept. So that is a wonderful thing about small towns. And a multi-stakeholder not-for-profit cooperative offers an effective, transparent model that addresses local community gaps and builds upon existing resources within a municipality or region. And we need more cooperative development because it really is the, I believe, it really is the way forward to healthier economies, healthier environments. I mean, we are a triple bottom line approach, right? People and 
and the environment come before profit. And we need to do more business that way, no matter what kind of product you're selling or service you're offering. Food scarcity can arise for a number of reasons. Sometimes they are geographical, sometimes economical, and more and more often they arise because of environmental factors. 15 years ago, they kind of estimate that they got out on the lake five days a week on average, and it's down to about two days a week on average. They used to go up to about 10 knots of wind, and now they go up to 20 knots of wind. So it's much more dangerous to be on the lake. The swells are bigger. Um, the, you know, they get bounced around a lot more. They're dealing with tricky things to do anyway, um, let alone having even bigger waves and less stability in the boat. Um, and also like the, all these temperature shifts the, and the storms come in faster. So like one thing Natasha talks about is when like you look at a weather report and then by the time they get out there, everything's changed and it's not really accurate. So they can't rely on a weather, like on a marine report, in order to go out anymore. You're listening to Victoria Serda and Natasha Akawenzi of the Bagdawad Alliance. The Bagdawad Alliance was formed um, by the fishers here in Nashingaming because they were seeing a lot of changes on the water and they wanted to be able to do something more proactively about it. Uh, the, the changes have been ongoing, but been a lot worse in the last 15 years. We hear a lot about climate change and the disastrous effects it will have on the planet. Cities underwater, intense storms. But I think the thing that fails to get mentioned enough, and what Victoria and Natasha highlighted for us during our talk, is how interconnected our ecosystems are. How a seemingly subtle shift in environmental temperature will ripple through entire networks of plants, animals, and people. Take ice formation as just one of many examples. If lakes are on average warmer, ice will form later and melt earlier. Several fish count on ice cover to provide a stable environment for their eggs. Turbulent water conditions can dislodge the eggs and kill the larval fish before they can hatch. While the extent of the maximum ice cover and how long it's on the water varies from year to year, ice coverage has declined by 71% between 1973 to 2010 on all five Great Lakes. This also affects people fishing the lakes. Ice fishing becomes less possible, and fishing as a way of life has become more dangerous and less profitable. So that seems like a very simple uh, equation, but very blunt. Also, they're seeing that there's no more ice, or very little ice. Um, there's been a number of years, over the last 10 years, that they've been able to fish all year, which is abnormal for Georgian Bay or Lake Huron. And there's other less intuitive consequences to a lake with less ice coverage. There's also a lot more uh, uh, evaporation, and you hear of all the snow squalls and snow days up here, which the kids love, but practicality is it's not good. Um, so we're seeing all these issues happening, uh, and it's happening more quickly. Uh, this year, they almost set a record for the amount of snow days that the kids had and uh, that's becoming normal. It's a bit counterintuitive, but our winters can be snowier because the planet is warming. Yes, well, because there's a lot more evaporation, which turns, with the wind, turns it into snow and snow squalls and really strange and one, we had a wonderful weather and thaws in January. We had a thunderstorm in January and we had another thunderstorm in February, which I don't think is normal, but it could be. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that wasn't happening. Yeah. You don't get thunderstorms in January, I don't think. Um, <laughs> like good, I, again, I could be wrong. Um, right now we're working on collecting the interviews from fishermen in the community and fishing families. This morning we just talked to a fisherman's wife. Um, this Wednesday we'll be talking to uh, fishermen about the changes that they're seeing to document it for a book and a documentary that we're doing that's been funded through the Ontario Arts Council. Um, so that's one project we're working on. Their goal is to record the verbal accounts of fishermen who have been on the lakes through generations and track the changes they've been witnessing. 
And it was important to everyone um, to be able to keep track of that history. But um, it's more and more people are understanding that Indigenous knowledge can really um, work really well with um, academic knowledge in order to be able to do planning. Uh, because it's a very similar form of science. You you still have a hypothesis. You, you know, you observe things over time, you record them and you come to conclusions. Like the fishers are doing the same thing, but just not in a, an academic kind of situation. And so when we um, listen to their wisdom from having done this so much, so much time, they know a lot of things that those of us that are on land all the time do not know. And they can, they can document them in their mind and they can tell you trends and be able to see those patterns that are really good for us to understand. Um, I've been doing climate change presentations and about global warming since the 80s, but I didn't understand what was happening on the lakes until I started listening to the fishers talking about what's going on. The social enterprise aspect of the Bag to Water Alliance came about when they started to see different ways of addressing their concerns over climate change and how it was affecting the lakes, the fish, and their way of life. Since then, they've been devising creative ways to disseminate the broad range of knowledge that one gains from generations working on the water, and try to offset the lost wages caused by the changing environment. As well as their environmental education workshops, they also lead immersive retreats with culinary students that can get pretty intense. You've been kind of nicknaming it at the boot camp, a boot camp, because they went home incredibly tired. I think mentally, spiritually, uh, physically, definitely physically, um, it was all, almost overwhelming that you could tell that they were really trying to digest everything and how it, they would just go home and just be tired. Um, but we got them to work on our farm. We, we have chickens and pigs and horses and goats, and they help clean up and... That was a new experience for them. They were culinary students. They have a brand new understanding of the work that it takes to get an egg. Um, I, I know it's a chicken that does the work, but I mean like feeding and caring to it and cleaning the coop, um, the amount of work it is to, to tend to animals. You know, it doesn't matter if it's raining or snowing or too hot out, you, ha you have to get out there and do it. So they have a brand new understanding of food and where it comes from and the amount of work. So there's a lot of discussion about the economics of food. Natasha and Victoria have also arranged fish filleting contests between fishermen and celebrity chefs, net seaming workshops at schools and community centers, shoreline cleanups, and crafting and chatting evenings. I think our unique angle as a social enterprise is that we are trying to connect people to being part of the ecosystem, not separate from it and to see it in a different way. It's not an easy thing to do, and it takes a lot of um, angles and a lot of uh, strategies and a lot of planning in order to figure out the best ways to help people to really connect back to the earth, to the water, and to being good stewards of all of those things. Photons are one of the most important features of growing, believe it or not, and I had no idea. In downtown Midland, Ontario, at the corner of Queen and Bay Street, a fuchsia-colored light radiates from a renovated government building. Lights are one of the most magical things. If you drive by the building in the winter, it's just this hue of pink and purple and white. It, nothing will bring a smile to my face bigger than, than driving by at night in the middle of the winter and seeing these huge lights and all the dark green in the farm. Step inside the building and the futuristic lights are matched with the sounds of a state-of-the-art vertical farm in operation. Um, you enter the farm and it's just this constant, it's constant noise. Every few minutes the water turns on and it's a gravity-fed system, so you hear just the trickle, yeah, all the way down and then one row goes and the other row goes. 
So the lights go on in intervals of every one minute. So at five, one set of lights goes on, 5.01, and you just see it. And you hear the click, like you can hear, cause it's a whole, a huge breaker that has to get turned on. And so you hear the like clunk and then everything one by one. Um, and it's, it's my favorite part is to see those lights turn on in that interval of minute after minute. And then all of a sudden it's just this glow. <laughs> We're inside Operation Grow, a social enterprise founded by Huronia Transition Homes, specifically by these two people. Um, I'm Haley MacDonald, the Director of Operations with Huronia Transition Homes. And I am Kathy Willis, and I'm the Executive Director of Huronia Transition Homes. And we're here today at Operation Grow, our social enterprise. Huronia Transition Homes is a women's anti-violence organization that offers four primary programs, a shelter, a sexual assault counseling and advocacy center, a program for kids who have been exposed to violence against their moms, and Operation Grow, which is their newest program and also a social enterprise. The enterprising aspect of Operation Grow is the vertical farm that uses cutting-edge technology to grow pesticide-free, non-GMO produce inside a controlled indoor environment. The produce grown in the farm will be distributed locally in both retail and wholesale markets at a competitive price, and greens will also be sold at a reduced cost to low-income women. The social mission of Operation Grow comes directly from the input of the women and their lived experiences. The idea for Operation Grow actually came, as I said, from the women we serve. So what I started to notice was that we were serving third generation women. So we'd serve their, I've worked at HTH now for 24 years. So we'd serve their grandmas, their moms, and now the granddaughters. And I started to realize that so many of the women that we were serving uh, were living in poverty and were living in isolation. And, you know, as, as resources became tighter and tighter, they were being pushed so much further to the margins in our community. And I, I realized that, like, poverty is, has a, such a huge impact on uh, vulnerability and exposure to violence. And, and realizing also that if you lived in that kind of chaos for three generations, how do you contemplate making changes? How do you feel good about getting up in the morning and going to work? Like, those tasks start to become impossible. So I wanted to build a, a program that was more community-based, was not service-based, and it was really about giving women the opportunity to build skills, build resiliency, become more independent, and build networks, uh, community networks, and get, you know, increase their social capital. As well as working at the farm or selling produce at the shop if they choose to, the women at Operation Grow also have access to a community kitchen where they can cook, learn to cook, or just socialize. There's a yoga and meditation studio with regular classes, and a shower facility to ensure there would be no barriers to working at the farm. When you hear Kathy and Haley talk, it becomes very clear how carefully and thoughtfully they considered every aspect of their business. But it wasn't just Kathy and Haley doing the work. They co-designed and co-created the business with the women they serve. From researching this field for the past year, you hear the name Operation Grow passed around a lot as an exemplary model of social enterprise. Here's Mary Ferguson. So I wrote about them in, uh, in my dissertation, and that's the one uh, social enterprise that really had human development as the main focus of its work. Um, I think they're doing really interesting things there, and uh, it's truly amazing what they've been able to do in a very few short years. It really is amazing. If you look for the building on Google Maps, you'll still see the boarded-up liquor store that used to be there not the beautifully redesigned marvel of human ingenuity that it is today. And they worked really hard to get to where they are. They consulted with the women in their community, partnered with local universities to inform their research, and employed engineers to supervise the installation of the farm. But despite all of this planning, this winter they hit a massive setback. We engaged in my, you won't be able to see them, but my air quotes are up, smart technology, and we have a highly sophisticated HVAC system. 
Uh, I don't think any of us, from from uh, the even from the design to the installer to us, recognized how complicated that was. Mm -hmm. It's created an enormous amount of difficulties for us in terms of our farm environment, which has to have a very stable environment. In January, we had black mold in the building because the HVAC wasn't doing what it needed to do, so we had to shut down, you know, all public access to the building. And it's not that it had a uh, a financial cost to us, but it had a huge cost in terms of sales revenue and in, in terms of program uh, delivery. So we really let the women down, right? In terms of we got build up their momentum, we were just ready to launch, and then we went, oops, sorry. It's often said that 50% of new businesses fail within the first year. According to the Small Business Association, this isn't exactly true, but the real numbers are not much brighter. 30% of new businesses fail during the first two years of being open, 50% during the first five years, and 66% during the first 10. Mary Ferguson and Kathy Lang both warned us that one thing that is often overlooked with social enterprise is the business aspect. The social good should always take priority but it is a package deal. It needs to be balanced with sound business practices to keep that social mission viable. When you start saying the word social enterprise, to me, there's the, the core piece is a, you can be doing whatever it is that you're doing. You're engaging in the economy, you're making money. Yeah, I guess there are two different things. One is an idea that um, could be a business. And the second is the market for that idea, which are two slightly different things. For instance, an area might not have a particular service, but if there's no market for that service in that area, uh, then that's why it hasn't evolved to date, perhaps, but also uh, why it's unlikely that it would survive. I mean, we all know entrepreneurship isn't particularly easy for most people. We knew we would have issues. We didn't realize how enormous the issues would be. In the case of Operation Grow, it wasn't their idea or even their market that got in the way of their success. It was this other third factor, the unforeseen curveball, that can devastate a new business if that third piece of the puzzle isn't set in place. And so you, there's another key learning, like you've really got to have enough working capital, like, you know, enough cash flow to really sustain over your worst case scenario times two. The farm was completely decommissioned in January 2019. The facility itself and all non-farm related programs remained open. During the overhaul, Operation Grow quickly adapted their business. Instead of working on the farm, women in the program were employed to help in the dismantling and sterilizing of hydroponic equipment. They also began to develop rental facilities and catering aspects of the business. Um, we started growing in March, so but it's it's you know food doesn't just appear. So we started planting in March. We cleaned out the whole system. Everything got disinfected. Um, intense work by everybody to make sure it was ready. And then we started planting, and things are looking incredible. Like the greens that have come out are just. It's finally we're growing in what we should have been growing in from the beginning, and yeah, it's great. And I know everybody always says failure makes success, or but um, it already felt like there was so much we were learning, like taking on a farm and you know bringing women in in a different capacity from just crisis programming. So for it to open up again felt phenomenal, and the women were excited because the neat thing that we hadn't anticipated was women members of Operation Grow um, who had been working in the farm prior to it closing down were working in it when, you know, plants were dying, um, like with issues happening. And so there's this shared excitement of, oh my gosh, can you believe the size of the lettuce is five times bigger than what we used to grow? And like, that's really neat. Planning Accounting for contingencies and doing market research are three basic must-dos for any smart business. But I think the other thing that you don't see enough in the business textbooks is about vision. Not just an idea, but this incredibly persistent mindset and goal that remains embedded as the focus of a social entrepreneur no matter what obstacles they're facing. This is Kathy back in the winter during what was probably the lowest point in Operation Grow's development. 
But really what Operation GROW is, if I may just digress for a minute, is this is phase one, and our dream is always to build phase two, which is a real farm, a, like, a, like a large farm, a large-scale farm that's going to be able to offer the women who, who you know, stabilize and succeed here the opportunity to have full-time jobs, add living wages with benefits, and that's the real game-changer, and that farm um, will also sustain all the programs of, of Huronia Transition Homes. And that's always been the intention, is that our social enterprise will sustain our programs and actually be able to allow us the flexibility to respond more to what the needs of the women are that we are serving. We talked with so many amazing people for this audio documentary, more than we could even include in this relatively short two-part series. But one thing kept troubling us. We kept thinking about Alan Jope. Remember him from the start of part one? And at a time when trust is breaking down in society, it's very important that any promises that our brands or other brands make are backed up by real action uh, that we're taking in the world and in the community. You hear terms like vote with your dollar and consumer impact, and we'd ask people about it. But I was getting concerned. How are they marketing themselves? How will consumers know that they are the good guys when large corporations like the ones Alan Jope leads have tens of millions of dollars to market their social impact? How do you compete with that? In most cases, they'd reply to us with an offhanded but polite, yeah, that would be great. Or, yeah, maybe we should let more people know that we're a social enterprise. You got the sense that marketing themselves wasn't really front of mind. They were more focused on running a successful business. Yeah, it wasn't until we met someone named Sean Loney that this missing piece started to make sense to us. So my, my name is Sean Loney, and I'm based in Winnipeg. Sean is the author of The Beautiful Bailout, An Army of Problem Solvers, and Build Prosperity, all books about social enterprise as an engine for change. He has a background in working for the government in Manitoba and launching a number of social enterprises himself. So I'm a social enterprise developer. I am um, helping, uh, well, I started about a dozen social enterprises that are doing what I believe to be Canada's defining issue, connecting the people who most need the work with the work that most needs to be done. The main thing that Sean highlighted for us was this paradigm shift that we hadn't fully realized we'd been learning about all along. And it has to do with the difference between citizens and consumers. Often the two terms are conflated, and we get the sense that we participate in a capitalist democracy through our consumption of goods and services. This paradigm puts the onus for change in the hands and wallets of the consumer. I guess we've seen a lot in the last 10 years, for example, the five-ton challenge, you know, governments are encouraging people to lower their carbon footprint, but at the same time, every new house that gets built is attached to a natural gas line, all cars are all combustion engines, uh, um, we're still building, you know, natural gas and coal plants, and it's like, you know, what, what was that five-ton challenge all about? Or the, or the, um, um, what was that diet, the 100-mile uh, the diet? And like, you know, what happened to that? These are all, like trying to get people to eat locally. And I just think the, the focus on people is a scam. It's because the systems are still set up to promote the problems. In late capitalism, the pendulum has swung so far beyond this consumer mentality that we've mistaken our rights and responsibilities as consumers for our rights and responsibilities as citizens. As a citizen, we have rights that show up in both formal and informal ways. These rights can be summarized as what we get out of our democratic institutions, things like health care, voter cards, and the right to work, and in return, what we give. Formal responsibilities like paying taxes or less formal responsibilities like voting. The problem is these two identities, the consumer and the citizen, are two sides of the same coin, and they need to be treated as such. 
If we only rely on the market to be the force of change, we are neglecting the role that our government should be playing in the equation. I believe, I mean, shopping ethically, buying social as individuals is important, but where my head is, is government. We got to get the systems changed because poverty is not about poor people. It's about a failure of the systems that they're interacting with. That's what we really got to understand that. And if all of our attention is, you know, trying to get people to buy socially, I think we're missing the boat. And I think we've missed the boat for some time. And that's a bit shocking for people. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, go and, you know, live an irresponsible life. Uh, those contributions are important. Um, when I'm getting renovations of any kind done at my house, I go to build or to purpose construction and get, you know, that done in that way. And we have a, a ground source heat pump at our house, so we're not using natural gas and we're saving money now to buy an electric vehicle. We want to be fossil fuel free as much as possible. So I'm into the personal transformative ways of shopping, but I just don't, it kind of bothers me a bit that we're still having conversations when the problem is government and how it's purchasing. And it's just, it, it needs to change. And so our energies need to go in that direction. Mary Ferguson echoed Sean's call for more government involvement. Uh, I, th I think one of the reasons that I'm interested in the role of government is because, to me, the government's trying to solve all these very complex problems. And the reality is that there is money that they can dedicate in to these kinds of solutions uh, as long as they... Um, sort of see the, the benefit of, of them as their own entity. Because to me, it's not about, as soon as the government gets too involved, it becomes a government service. Whereas I think it's possible to be, to be situated in a marketplace, be supported by government, and have people be able to access the housing, the childcare, the elder care, uh, with um, processes that, you know, the way the government likes to deal with taxes and those kinds of things. What social enterprises are doing, if they are working how they should, is taking the responsibilities of citizenship seriously and effectively merging it with the role of the consumer. The change that Sean, Mary, and many other experts in this field are advocating for is for government to give social enterprises a seat at the table alongside for-profit businesses when allocating federal or provincial money. Currently, the federal government and the four largest provinces in Canada collectively spend about $29 billion a year on business subsidies. The way Sean and Mary see it, if successful social enterprises, not-for-profits, and co-ops could compete on equal footing for those subsidies, they'd arguably be able to offer a better return on investment to the government. Um, the reason why government is important in this to me is that for most nonprofits, the vast majority of the work we do, the financial beneficiary is actually government. So if we're reducing homelessness, the, they're reducing the number of people that are in emergency wards and hospitals or psych beds or in the back of police cars, for example. Um, and uh, if we're reducing um, incarceration by giving, you know, working with people to promote employment, social enterprises, that uh, it's reducing at eighty to $100,000 a year, the costs of someone being incarcerated on an annual basis. So I just feel like if we're really going to scale what we're doing, we have to find creative ways to engage, engage government, the financial beneficiaries of the work that we do. This finally brings us to the point we've been dancing around for this entire project. If you're going to engage the government in a serious way to consider funding social enterprises, as they would for profit businesses, you need to be able to paint a full picture of what value the government is getting for their money. Some of these values, like the one Sean listed, are pretty easy to quantify, but there are other value measurements. There are things like someone feeling more included in society. How do you quantify that? We know that people who are more included in society and have more social connections tend to have better health outcomes. So there, there are links like that, but that, that softer part is something that a lot of people shy away from because they want to be able to measure something. My job is not to help a particular social enterprise tell its story. My job is to help many social enterprises tell their story together. And uh, we're inventing it as we go right now. 
That's Kate Ruff. And when we met Kate, we really felt like we had found the final piece in this puzzle. I am an assistant professor at Carleton University. I teach accounting, which is surprisingly relevant to impact measurement. And I'm here today because I lead a project called the Common Approach to Impact Measurement. Impact measurement is a process of understanding how much social change occurred and can be attributed to an organization's activities. It can be very challenging, even within one organization, to determine what social impact their work has definitely had. But what Kate is trying to do is find a middle ground to collectively set an impact measurement standard for multiple organizations. The challenge I face is the one about trying to do the same impact measurement for a lot of organizations without losing its relevance and its meaning. And that is a really difficult problem uh, and that we have not yet done yet. We are getting very close, we're working on it, uh, but we are not there yet. The way Kate is trying to quantify social impact is by creating a flexible measurement that can be adapted to the context of every social enterprise, but also be understood as an at least somewhat consistent unit of measurement in a broader context. And if the idea of a flexible measurement seems a little imprecise to you, Kate is ready to remind us that it's been done before. In accounting, there are ideas like inventory. An inventory is the stuff a company has that's ready to sell. That's an imprecise but useful definition. There are several ways that a company can measure the value of that inventory and they have some choices. And they, different companies use different choices. And actually, when you get into a manufacturing company, there's a whole bunch of decisions that get made, such that at the end of the day, no two companies are not the exact same. But we all do this collective shrug, and we're like, inventory, we get it, moving on. There's some differences, but that's inventory, and your approach was reasonable, and it's not the exact same as the person beside you. Fine, moving on, inventory, that's the value. Uh, and then companies also have to disclose what their method is so people who really do care can see the difference. In impact measurement, we've never tried that approach. The main thing is, once a standard value and an indicator can be assigned to social impact, social enterprises can then present another metric by which to be judged alongside less socially-minded businesses to their ultimate client. This is Sean Loney again. And so the marketing isn't the traditional kind of marketing where you're marketing to private consumers. I believe our marketing and every organization that says they're out there to help social enterprises should be completely geared towards government who are the financial beneficiaries of the work that we're doing. It's social enterprise, social enterprise. It suggests that money is involved with this. And so how is it that we're going to be successful if the main thing that we do and the reason why we do it is a freebie to the people that are benefiting from it. So the marketing then becomes a direction to one customer, government. This isn't to say that marketing to customers isn't necessary. Social enterprises first and foremost still need to be viable businesses. They need to compete in the marketplace alongside for-profit businesses. The hope is that with the added return value of social good, social enterprises simply and quantifiably present a better option. I want to end the show by reading a statement that one of our editors, Ross McIntyre, wrote when we were trying to parse the differences between consumers and citizens, because I think it perfectly encapsulates why all of the social enterprises we talk to ultimately exist. Or maybe we should get Ross to read it. <clears throat> It is no longer enough just to participate in the economy by working, buying, and taking on debt. Social enterprises are loudly arguing that this was never enough, and in fact, this traditional take on capitalism has led us to the brink of social, environmental, and economic disaster multiple times over. So, if we act as citizens in our purchasing or in our building of new business with social value, we are actively delivering on our responsibility to be engaged, to be aware of the full impact of our spending, and to make informed decisions based on more than the simplistic, outdated model of work-spend-accumulate. This is economic activism through the pursuit of social value. The emergent field of social enterprise is the manifestation of individuals, organizations, and communities refusing and redefining their role in socioeconomic structures that have only grown more ineffective and dangerous over time.
So to recap, if you run a social enterprise or work for one or want to start one, here are our notes. Three themes that really stood out to us. Number one, an oldie but a goodie. Show me the money. Or show someone the money. Some government body. Be open and transparent with what you are doing and reinvest the majority of your profits back towards your mission. Number two, be open and transparent with your data. If you run a social enterprise or are thinking of starting one, remember that you're all in it together. The more data that you can share with academic third parties, like Kate Ruff's The Common Approach to Impact Measurement, the stronger the sector will become because we will be able to turn the less tangible benefits of social enterprise into quantifiable measurements. And finally, number three. Like any form of entrepreneurship, social enterprise is hard work. It has ups and downs like any organization and requires drive, flexibility, and constant attention. It's incredibly hard work, but it's good work with a deeper well of motivation. And that's it. Three things. Pretty easy. I guess we could have said those three things more succinctly, but then you wouldn't have heard from all the cool people we got to talk to. Also, as simple as it seems now, I don't think I could have understood it as well without actually speaking to people working in social enterprise. And we hope you've enjoyed hearing from them too. This project was written and produced by Angela Shackle and Brayden Labonte of Accounts and Records, with script editing assistance from me, your host Jenna Stavanato, and the Senko team at Georgian College, Ross McIntyre and Jake Culture. This documentary was initiated by Senko at Georgian College's Center for Changemaking and Social Innovation, under the leadership of Ellie Green, Senko Program Manager, and Susie Addison Tour, Director of the Center for Changemaking and Social Innovation at Georgian College. The music you heard is by Luca. Bonus track. Okay, one more thing. We wanted to take a moment to sincerely thank all the people we interviewed but didn't get to include. You definitely helped in the development of this project and in our understanding of social enterprise. Okay, here it goes. Carol Maitland, Economic Development and Marketing Coordinator for the Town of Shelburne. Brent Brody by Social Canada. Megan and Marie Wright, Mirror Images. Emily Morrison, Executive Director at Launchpad Youth Activity and Technology Centre in Hanover, Ontario. Courtney Miller, Manager of the Small Business Enterprise Centre for Gray County. Wendy Timpano, General Manager at the Community Development Corporation of Aurelia and Area. From Georgian College, Lindsay Telfer, Catherine Oosterban, Karen Baker, Kaylee McDonald, Lisa Belisle, and Leah Merkley. Thank you all so, so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us, and you definitely all help shape and inform this project.